the National Archives podcast series, An Intimate History of Your Home, presented by Lucy Worsley, as part of our Writer of the Month series of talks. Today I want to talk to you about people's homes from all levels in society over a long time period, from the Normans to the present day. And I want to concentrate not on just normal, everyday homes, but ordinary, everyday things as well. Things like forks and curtains and wallpaper and cleaning products and underpants. And (laughs) you might well ask, in fact, lots of people have asked me, isn't this all a bit trivial? Why are you so interested in other people's underpants? (laughs) But I give you a serious answer, because actually I think that if you look at all the tiny little changes in the ways that people think about and look after their homes and their bodies, if you add up all of these little details, then you can chart great overarching revolutionary changes in society and culture and medicine and gender (laughs) relations. Now, in saying this, I'm not saying that I don't think that constitutional history and political history don't matter. They, they do matter. They're very important. But they're just not for me. For me as a historian, the devil has always been in the detail, the nitty-gritty, dirty detail of daily life. And I'm, sh- I'm sure you've all experienced this, where if you find out just some little thing about how somebody lived their lives, sometimes it's as if a window opens up and you get an insight into their, into their mental world. Let me give you a quotation in support of what I'm saying, from Henry James. Henry James, the novelist, a great describer of houses and interiors as expressive of character and social status. He has one of his characters in A Portrait of the Lady. This is what Madame Merle says. She says, I have a great respect for things. We are each of us made up of our house, our furniture, our garments, the books we read, our friends, all these things are expressive. Now, I do believe this to be true. And uh, what I would like to do this afternoon is to try to get you to think again about what your home says about you. Because like it or not, it expresses all kinds of messages about your education, your background, your family, your wealth, that the art historians of the future will be able to come along and read. I can sort of hear you thinking about that already. In my talk, I'm going to take you quickly through the history of the four main rooms of the house, the bedroom, the bathroom, the living room, and the kitchen. And we're going to start off in in my bedroom. Here we are, I've invited you in. And it's lucky that you were invited because it would have been rude for you to barge into somebody's bedroom today, wouldn't it? It's not a place that you go into without an invitation. But this is actually a relatively new phenomenon, isn't it? If you think about the situation 100 years ago, well, today you may share your bedroom with your husband or your wife. Perhaps you shared it with your brother or your sister when you were growing up. But 100 years ago, you were quite happy to share not only your bedroom, but even your bed with your colleagues from work. Think about that. <laughs> or even with people that you didn't know at all. Well, how, how was this, how was this um, acceptable? Here we've got some medieval people, and as you can see, they just don't have this concept of a separate room, a private room for sleeping. This lady is in bed, 
but she's quite happy to share her bedroom space with other people who are eating, who are working, who are looking after the children. And just down here to the left, there's a couple of random rabbits. I've got no idea what they're doing there. You might ask, wasn't this uncomfortable? Didn't she, didn't she miss privacy? And the answer is, well, no, probably not. People in medieval life could not afford to have this desire for privacy that we have today. This is the great medieval hall of Penshurst Place in Kent. And a big house like this was the centre of culture and security for the surrounding area. And many, many people were glad to come and work here as servants. There weren't enough separate bedrooms for them all. So at night, you would have found this hall being turned into a kind of a dormitory with people bedding down on the tiles there. And they didn't mind, because in medieval life, the great questions were, will I be warm tonight? Will I have something to eat? Will I be safe? And even if it was noisy and smoky and crowded and smelly, at least you were safe on this hall floor. What were people lying upon? Well, we have a few hints of people lying on sacks stuffed with hay and straw. You were looking at the mattress here. May <laughs> I just point out? And there are some medieval household instructions dating from 1452 for the stuffing of one of these really big sacks full of leaves. Um, it's described as being nine feet long and seven feet broad. So that, to me, implies it was intended to be shared by several people all at once. And there was this lost etiquette of how to take your position in a communal bed. There were rules that developed about this sort of thing. The correct order, um, and this is a piece of evidence from 18th century Ireland, the correct order was against the wall, your unmarried daughter. Next, the mother. Next, the father next your son, and then next, um, away from the wall, any visitor to your household, like a travelling pilgrim or a tinker or anybody like that. And you can see the point of it is to keep them away from your unmarried daughter. <laughs> Here, here's a brilliant quotation. This is from the, the 17th century diary of Abigail Wiley of New England. Because um, you, you may well wonder how any children became conceived under these conditions. Well, when Abigail Wiley didn't feel like it, she didn't say... Not tonight, darling, I've got a headache. She made the two children sleep in the middle of the bed <laughs> instead of on the outsides, as was normal. But this wasn't good enough for the Lord and the Lady, oh no. And here at Penshurst Place, they would sleep upstairs in a room adjoining and overlooking the hall. So in elevation, in elevation you can see the two big windows belonging to the hall. And there's the staircase going up in that turret. And this elevated room called the chamber is called that, the chamber, because it's the first room in the house that isn't the hall. And it's looked after by a special servant called the chamberlain. It's his job. And this chamber was not just a bedroom. It was a living room as well, used by the Lord and Lady for administration, for business, leisure, dining and sleeping. But it did probably contain a proper wooden bed like this one. Now, it's quite hard to get information about medieval beds because they don't generally survive and this is a reconstruction that we worked on of Edward I's bed for the displays at the Tower of London and um, there were various sources of evidence the royal accounts mentioned that the whole thing was painted green with gold stars on it 
and also that it had different parts that were linked together by chains. So the posts and the wooden bed frame come, come apart. They're demountable. You can pack up the whole thing to take it with you if you want to. And you can also see how this works in um, the contemporary manuscript illustration of the conception of Merlin. It's another sex scene, I'm afraid. <laughs> What's going on here is that um, that's Merlin's mum, who's a nun, who's lying down at the bottom. That's Merlin's dad, who's a demon with the horns. And what I love about it is that the demon doesn't look at all happy that he's... <laughs> he's kind of going, I've got to have sex with this nun, I don't really want to. Anyway, there was... The result of that was the, the conception of the wizard Merlin. But what we're really looking at here is the way the, the white frame of the bed is standing separately to the frame holding up the canopy. And that, like Edward's the first bed, was, was one of these um, demountable contraptions. And this is typical of medieval furniture. It was too valuable for you to leave it behind as a nobleman or a king. You would take it with you as you travelled from castle to castle on your itinerant lifestyle. And an echo of this still survives in the French language, where furniture is called mobilier, mobile stuff, stuff that you take with you. Now, in your early um, wooden framed bed, the mattress probably lay on bed strings. And we're talking here about a rope that's threaded up and down and then side to side um, between the sort of rectangular frame of the bed. Uh, Inevitably, the, the, the rope would sag over time. And what's going on here is that I'm about to spend a night in the reproduction Tudor bed that they have at the Wealdon Downland Museum in Sussex. And this lady is showing me how to kill the bed bugs. <laughs> That's why I'm looking a bit unhappy. Uh, and she also explains to me how you tighten up the bed strings before you get in to stop the whole thing from sagging. And some people say, although others disagree with them, I must admit, some people say that this is the origin of our expression, night, night, sleep tight, don't let the bed bugs bite. Now, my night in this uh, repro Tudor bed solves a bit of a mystery for me. Um, I often wondered, and I bet you have too, why it is that when we look at pre-modern pictures of people in bed, it often looks like they're sleeping sitting up. Now, this I'd always assumed that this was to do with um, uh, artistic license, the artist wanting to show the person's face more clearly, so they elevated them. And I also don't think it's very likely that kings slept in their crowns. That would have been <laughs> rather uncomfortable. But after I spent my night in the, in the rope-strung bed, I had a new theory about this. Actually, it's rather like sleeping in a hammock, because it really isn't all that all that unstable. There's no way you can sleep on your front in a rope-strung bed. You're forced to adopt this sort of curved position like a banana. Now, towards the end of the Middle Ages, we get a novelty. We get people, for the first time, choosing to spend time by themselves. And this trend, which is linked to the rise of reading and to Protestant religion, where you're more often praying directly to God by yourself, not through a priest. It's linked to um, this new room in the house, the closet, these special little richly decorated rooms that appear off the bedroom for private meditation or for storing art or books. A closet might also be known by its French name of a cabinet, 
And this is why the Prime Minister still has a cabinet today. It's a group of advisors small enough to fit into one of these little rooms. They're very attractive rooms because they seem to be places where secrets are kept, where treasures are kept. And it's quite sad that they've died out in British architecture, I think. But the Pilgrim Fathers took the closet over the sea to North America. And even in contemporary Manhattan, if you think of the character Carrie in Sex in the City, for example, she still stores her shoes in this massive walk-in closet that she has in her Manhattan flat. And these shoes, which are her most precious possessions, they represent her hopes and her dreams. In keeping them in the closet, she's acting just like a Tudor person was. <laughs> Let's get back to sleep. Now, here's a, here's a fascinating theory that I want to share with you. The theory that in pre-industrial times, people did not sleep straight through for eight hours like we do today that they slept instead in two separate and distinct spells, the first sleep and then the second sleep. So the argument goes, they went to bed, they slept for three or four hours, they were awake a couple of hours, and then they went back to sleep again. Now, there are a few documentary references to this, but what really swayed me was um, a, a modern scientific experiment that was done where people alive today were put into conditions of darkness for 14 hours out of 24. And that is the length of the British winter night. Now, our bodies just don't need that much sleep. It's too long. And if you don't have the resources to invest in artificial light, this is an expensive thing to do, um, your body naturally, apparently, falls into this pattern of sleep awake asleep again. And so I loved the idea that the Tudors had, the, had this sort of lost slice of life in the middle of the night when they were up and about and doing things. What were they doing, you might ask? Well, that's where the documents come in. We have references to people conversing with their loved ones, because during the hours of daylight it was just work, work, work in the fields continuously. So we have socialising, we have people getting up and doing housework by moonlight, moonlight being a vastly important source of light in the 16th century. And we also have references to people going out and robbing their neighbours, I'm sorry to say, <laughs> as well. That four-poster bed has gradually been developing as we've been moving forwards into the 16th century. And here it is, at, at sort of its most magnificent point. This is the fabulous Great Bed of Ware, uh, made in the late Elizabethan period, designed for many people, as you can see. And it has uh, immensely rich curtains and coverings and hangings. And clearly, if you own a bed like this, you are going to need a servant to make it for you. And even as bedrooms are becoming slightly more private places, they will still be populated by your domestic staff. Here, oh, this is brilliant. Here I've got for you a conversation which is from a Tudor phrase book for foreign tourists to England. <laughs> so now you've got to imagine you're, you are a Dutch businessman. You're staying at an inn in the Strand in London in 1596. This is what you might say to your chambermaid, my she-friend. Is my bed made? Is it good? I'm going to do the Dutch accent. <laughs> and she's going to say, Yes, sir, it is a good feather bed. The sheets be very clean. Now it's your turn to speak. You say, My she friend, kiss me once and I shall sleep the better. <laughs> but your chambermaid is going to say, I had rather die than to kiss a man in his bed or in any other place. Take your rest in God's name. 
your response. I thank you, fair maiden. Now, it's kind of a, a textbook to Tudor harassment, isn't it? <laughs> it's regrettable. Here's a sight you don't often see. <laughs> <laughs> these, these young people here are, are demonstrating the rather curious sleeping arrangement that's known as bundling. Now, we hear about this happening in rural areas in the 17th and the 18th century, particularly in Wales. And in it, we get a young man and a young woman who are unmarried. They're courting, and they are allowed to spend the night together in her parents' beds. But the young people are um, separated from each other by a big board, and often they're tied down with ropes too. <laughs> and the idea is that they're going to spend the night chatting and getting to know each other, to see whether they like each other enough to get married. And the whole thing, it actually makes sense if you think about the design of contemporary cottages, because there weren't enough separate rooms in the cottage for the young people to go and get any sort of private conversation. So they would either go off into the green lanes where anything might happen, or they could undergo this sort of semi-supervised courtship ritual in the parents' bed. And it was considered to be a sensible thing to do for laying the foundations of a good marriage. Here's something else you see less and less today. The, these, these women are all celebrating after the successful birth of the lady's child. Now, today, only 40% of us can expect to die at home in our own beds. But in the 16th century, all of these great lifetime events, birth, um, marriage, death, took place at home, and very often in the very same piece of furniture, if you inherited it from your parents. These ladies are celebrating because she's gone through the dangerous um, experience of childbirth, and um, it's what's called the up-sitting now, two weeks after the birth, and traditionally the lady would invite all of her female friends in for a party. Um, I quite like the idea of these all-female parties in Tudor households, and they would have drinking and joking and songs and lovely food. And sometimes we hear about the men getting jealous and dressing up in drag in order to gatecrash. <laughs> Moving on through time. Now, here, here's the um, conventional 17th-century cottage design that I was telling you about. Lack of privacy here. This is one of the cottages um, that they've got at um, the Weald and Downland Museum. And look how the bedrooms lead one into another into another. You can see that the bedrooms uh, one and two really don't have privacy. They are, they are routes of access. But in Georgian London, and here we are in about 1720, we get for the first time part of the floor plan of the house being given over purely to circulation. That landing there only has the purpose of providing separate and private access to bedrooms one and two. And in the middle ranks of society in Georgian London, bedrooms are gradually becoming private. Less so for those at the top of Georgian society, in these grand royal state beds, the king or queen would still expect to have a lot of hangers-on courtiers, servants present with them. And here is uh, not a royal um, levee, but an aristocratic levee. This is a countess being got ready by her servants to face the world. I think there are, are there nine people in the room of her. Yes, that's right, nine and ten, ten with the little boy who's brought the toys to show her in the hope of making a sale. But... This is William Hogarth, this image, and he's expressing slight distaste here for what's going on. There are condemnatory overtones. The, the hangers-on are all fops, they're slightly distasteful people. There are scenes of seduction taking place on the wall. 
This is beginning to be unacceptable. There is a sense that bedrooms should be private, they should be pure. And this will reach its high point in the 19th century, when the purity, the privacy of your bedroom and the purity of your bed linen becomes of paramount importance. This uh, fantastic list here is Mrs. Panton, the household management guru's advice on the well-made bed. She says that the well-made bed must consist of the iron bedstead. Next comes a thick sheet of brown holland fabric to cover up the springs. Then we get the horsehair mattress, then we get the feather mattress. Then we get the under blanket, the under sheet, the bottom sheet, the top sheet, the blankets, the eider downs and the pillow covers. And Mrs. Panton says that your good housemaid will take all of this off the bed every single day and shake it out of the window. She also says that good housemaids are very hard to find. <laughs> you can see why. Clearly, this is going to be unsustainable without that whole infrastructure of domestic service that underpinned the Victorian middle-class household. And post-war, actually in the 1970s, we get the greatest revolution yet in bed-making. The continental quilt introduced from Scandinavia by Terence Conran. And now it's really simple. You just go like that, and the bed is made. It represents liberation from the drudgery of housework and also liberation of other kinds. An early advertising slogan was, sleep with a Swede. (laughs) Now, this is a very simple form of bedding. And in a funny sort of way, I think this takes us right back around to where we started from. Just a single cover, just a simple mattress. And that's almost like those servants lying on the floor on on their sacks with a cloak over their shoulder. And this is a theme to which I'm going to be returning, the way we're going back into history. Now, the next room we're going to explore is the bathroom, the room in the house that has the shortest history of all. 200 years ago, bathrooms did not exist as separate rooms. People have actually quite, quite an unfortunate idea, I think, about medieval society. A lot of people would use that word, medieval, to mean something that was horrible and distressing and painful and nasty. But in fact, if you were at the top of medieval society, life was clean and it was comfortable. These medieval people are attending one of the famous communal bathhouses that clustered along the south bank of the river in Southwark. You could see it was a bit like going to the modern health spa. You could take a shower. You could spend the whole day there. You could have a tub. You could take a steam bath. These people are even eating a meal while sitting in the bath there. And I say they were mixed sex. They were, they were respectable places, and anybody could go here. It is true to say, though, that bathing does have erotic overtones in medieval society. If you just look at um, Sir Lancelot, for example, who is basically James Bond, um, whenever Sir Lancelot rescues a damsel in distress, she always says, oh, Sir Lancelot, let me give you a bath. And this sort of thing happens. And they do gradually start to shade over into houses of ill repute. That's one of the reasons that Henry VIII closes the bathhouses down in the 1540s. Now, medieval London may have had these relatively sophisticated bathhouses, less so the toilet arrangements. One of the rival alternative explanations, there were several, for our word loo, is this this cry um, that used to occur, garde loo, garde loo, look out for the water as the chamber pot is emptied. That guy is getting a nice shower from it. 
And just like we saw in the bedroom, there's as yet no real concept that um, going to the loo is a private activity. Um, when Samuel Pepys gets a clothes stool, this is a significant consumer purchase for him. It's the velvet-covered, padded, seatless stool that's positioned over the chamber pot. Uh, when he acquires one of these, he's terribly proud of it, and he keeps it in his drawing room so that everybody, <laughs> everybody can see it. Uh, this, this is a 17th century example, but Henry, Henry VIII in the 16th century, he would have had one of these velvet-covered closed stools um, positioned over a chamber pot like this one. His courtiers, slightly less important than he, would have had chamber pots like this in their own individual lodgings at Hampton Court Palace. And the brilliant thing about this particular uh, piss pot, that was the Tudor word for it, is that it was excavated in the Privy Garden at Hampton Court. It was sent away for analysis, and when the scientist's report came back, it said, still contains traces of genuine Tudor urine. (laughs) At Hampton Court, though, the lowest servants, the great mass of servants, were supposed to go and use what's called the Great House of Easement, which is a 14-seater communal toilet um, that was over the moat. But the problem was the servants couldn't be bothered to walk there. It's quite a long way. So in the palace regulations, you see all of this. No, rule, rule number 72. Do not um, relieve yourselves in the corners of the corridors. And what the, um, what the housekeepers would do was chalk crosses around the bottoms of the walls in the hope that people would be reluctant to desecrate the religious symbol. <laughs> now, I mentioned that Henry VIII closed down the bathhouses, and actually, in about 1550, we begin the two so-called dirty centuries. In these two centuries, there was uh, a much greater reluctance than we saw in medieval life to take a bath, to wash yourself, to plunge your body into water. Now, that's not to say that they had no notion of personal hygiene, the Tudors and the Stuarts. It was just different. To them, good personal hygiene lay in wearing fresh, clean linen, white linen, against your skin to sort of soak up the juices of your body. Uh, Here we've got a gentleman writing in 1626, a shirt today serves to keep the body clean more effectively than could the steam baths of the ancients. And that's why we see such an emphasis on the sparkling white of the collar and the cuffs um, representing the underwear in Tudor and Stuart portraits. That represents a clean body, representing a virtuous mind, representing somebody close to God. Why did they have this fear of bathing? Well, it's because they um, had a widespread understanding that their bodies were made up of the four humours, and the sickness was caused if these four different humours or liquids got out of balance. So in crude terms, if you believe in this and you plunge your body into water... You fear that the body will come in, water will come in through the pores and it will make you sick. It'll throw that delicate balance off. And that's why they were bleeding, for example, in order to help hopefully restore the balance. When we get to the late 17th century, the enlightenment starts to happen. Doctors realise that this is nonsense. You won't, in fact, damage your health by bathing. And that, it fa- in fact, it can be beneficial. We see it returning to prominence in manuals of medical advice, particularly bathing in cold water. They're very keen on this in the late 17th century. They say it will cure scrofula, rickets, constipation, and in particular, impotence. They go on and on about this. Cold bathing has this good alone. It makes old John to hug old Joe. 
It gives a source of resurrection to buried joys through lost erection. <laughs> also in the early 18th century, it becomes easier to bathe at home. Because of the new demand, uh, people start to introduce new plumbing techniques. This is a tap from Hampton Court. It's, it's possibly even from the 16th century. The technology existed, but there wasn't the call for it. But in the 17th century, with the return of, of bathing to prominence in medical advice, we get this wonderful civil engineering achievement in London called the New River, an artificial waterway that brought fresh, clean water down from Hertfordshire 40 miles into the city. The early part of it was canalised, and then it was fed into these amazing pipelines of elm trunks, like this one at the top here that survives, hollowed-out elm trunks, and they're slotted end into end into end, which is uh, what you see here. It looks like a string of sausages, but that's a great water pipeline running along the surface of the street in about 1800. And the pipeline is leaking over there. That's why water gushing out. And from this wooden pipeline in the centre of your early Georgian street, a lead pipeline would have read, run into the basement of your particular house, and there your maidservant could carry up water to fill up your bathtub. And also, for face washing, we start to see the development of these, these pieces of furniture, wash stands, that will become the origin of our modern wash basins. So this corner of the Georgian bedroom is the origin of the room that will develop the separate bathroom. <coughs> On now to the living room. And this is such an interesting room of the house, I think, because I see the living room as being like a little stage where people perform the best possible version of themselves. Because this is the one room of the house, really, where you're going to be entertaining your guests, your peers, your friends, or perhaps your rivals. And right at the heart of life in the living room is, of course, the chair, originally reserved just for the household's head. The original chairman, if there was only one chair, was the person who got to sit down while everybody else stood and watched. And the notion that the people in charge have the best seats is so powerful that it still survives in language today. Judges sit on benches and professors hold chairs in their subjects. And if you get a promotion at work, you might be invited to take a seat at the board of your company, the board being the actual physical table around which meetings take place. Here is that chamber in the medieval house once again, that multi-purpose room. Here it's being treated like we might imagine a living room. Somebody is sitting at a chair um, doing a piece of writing there. He's got his back to the fire, which is the best place, and he's clearly the most important person because everybody else is standing and watching him. But with the ending of the Wars of the Roses, all these defensive requirements that medieval castles had had to have begin to fall away, and we get grand Tudor houses acquiring extra rooms specifically for the purpose of what we might describe a living room, a room for entertaining and for spending leisure time. Why do we get this sort of specialisation of rooms as time goes on? Well, I think it was a lot to do with the emergence of a consumer society, as well as changing notions about privacy. In medieval times, people make their living out of growing food and then eating it. 
that in a industrial times, people make a living out of making things and then selling them to each other, don't they? And so it, the system requires people to go on buying more and more things, owning more and more things, and therefore requiring more and more rooms in their houses to put them in. If we look at a grand Elizabethan house from the 1590s, like Hardwick Hall, there are three different spaces here that could all be legitimately described as living rooms, I think. The first is called the Great Chamber, and this is a nod back to that medieval chamber. This one was used for the reception of guests. The second, the long gallery, is used for gentle exercise and for the display, in this case, of 37 family portraits. And the third living room is this one here. It's called the Withdrawing Chamber, and here, the owner of the house, Bess of Hardwick, Countess of Shrewsbury, could withdraw with a smaller circle of intimate friends. And this, the withdrawing chamber, would give its name to the drawing room of the future. In the 17th century, the idea comes in that the textiles in your living room should match. This is a new level of sophistication. Here in 1660, this is, this is at Ham House just down the road. Um, this is a furnishing en suite. The red chair matches the red hangings in the backgrounds there. And that's an idea that still survives in the modern three-piece suite. And this trend of specialisation I've been talking about reaches its high point in the 19th century. In the very grandest Victorian houses, we get sitting rooms and morning rooms and libraries and billiard rooms and conservatories, all with the very slightly different purpose of spending leisure time and entertaining your guests. And in these rooms, that escalation of stuff reaches a high point as well. In a Victorian living room, we get the, the contemporary equivalent of that long gallery full of family portraits. In Elizabethan England, that could only be possessed by a countess, somebody at the top of society. But in the 19th century, anybody could have 37 family portraits. You just had to go out and buy yourself 37 photographs. Now, some people would say that all this had got over the top. It had multiplied out of control. It had become not valuable stuff, but clutter. And that is what's behind the machine aesthetic of modernism of the 20th century, a reaction to all of that. It's just consumerism by a different name, but it has quite a different aesthetic, doesn't it? Finally, let's go into the kitchen. And let me tell you, I cleaned my kitchen up quite a bit before taking that picture. <laughs> doesn't normally look like that. <laughs> you, can, you can probably tell from these slides I've been showing you that the flat where I live is a sort of um, open-plan, single-space type arrangement. And right bang in the middle of it, we've got our hob, uh, where we do our cooking. And um, weirdly, this reminds me of the medieval peasant's dwelling, where the centre of the house, the heart of the home, was the central half. If you look at early censuses, they don't count people or houses. They count halves. This is the basic unit of civilization, hence the half tax. And in the one-room medieval peasant's dwelling, here's one from the Wheels and Downland Museum, again, is just a single space, and right in the middle, this round, flat rock upon which the fire is built. Over your fire in your medieval peasant's cottage, you would hang your iron pot 
with a rounded bottom. Iron and rounded, because uh, it's got good heat conductivity. Round is an easy shape to make, and you can also snuggle it into your sandy floor uh, if you don't have a table to put it on. And into your pot, you would throw any kind of food, vegetables that you had at all. To make the soup called pottage, pottage made in a pot, which was the staple of peasants' diets. Uh, not much meat in there, lots of grain and vegetables. And you would keep it on the go from day after day after day to make a sort of perpetual soup. And that's why we say peas pudding hot, peas pudding cold, peas pudding in the pot, sometimes literally nine days old. Now, why um, did uh, medieval people uh, seem to enjoy eating sludgy food quite so much? This is a question that often gets asked in the kitchens at Hampton Court. And a lot of people think it's because they had bad teeth, they couldn't chew. Well, not really. Um, It's because if you cook food for nine days, (laughs) or even for less time than that, if you cook food for a lengthy period of time, you make it microbiologically safe. You kill the bugs. And you definitely want to do this because here is a Stuart poet describing the horrors of tapeworm, unsavoury belches after drinking, a foul stomach, a breath that's stinking. These are the symptoms that will tell you there's crawling insects in your belly. If you were at the top of society, though, if you were a Tudor aristocrat, you did not want to eat sludge like the peasants. You wanted to eat the best food of all, fresh roasted meat cooked for hours very slowly and deliciously over an open fire. This is such a high-status form of food. Firstly, you need a deer park to get the meat. Secondly, you need an awful lot of wood to cook it for hours. And thirdly, you need manpower. You need to employ somebody to turn that spit round and round and round. But this concept that roast food is the best food is still so powerful that, again, it survives in language. On Sundays, you you talk about having a roast. You don't mean a roast at all, because today we roast our joints by baking it in an oven. But we still call it a roast, because roast food is the best to eat. One amusing, this is a very amusing technological dead end. Um, That turnspit boy in the early 18th century, he gets replaced very briefly by the turnspit dog. Specially bred for the purpose, they had these long bodies and short little legs like sausage dogs so that they could run about in massive hamster wheels to turn the spit. Uh, the evidence for all these is, um, is scanty, but it does exist. Charles Darwin comments on this breed of dog as an example of genetic evolution. It has died out now, I'm sorry to say. But this is the last known surviving turnspit dog who has been... Um, rather amateurishly taxidermied (laughs) and you can go and see him at Abergavenny Museum in Wales if you want to his name is Whiskey (coughs) now ideally in your 18th century grand house your kitchen would be in a vast echoing and completely separate block like this so that the smell and the sound of your servants would not affect the living quarters of your family that's the ideal in the 19th century city though Uh, There wasn't enough space for this ideal of the separate kitchen. The kitchen gets pushed down and under and into the basement of the tall London townhouse. This is not so convenient for your servants to be running up and down all of those stairs. It's a lightless, airless, gaslit, um, quite unpleasant sort of a, a bunker. 
And as we move into the 19th century, we begin to see various technological innovations. The people who have invented gaslighting and factories turn their attention in on the home, and the science of domestic economy is born. One of the chief innovations is the invention of the range instead of the open fire, which vastly increases fuel efficiency. And now your round-bottoms pot has to be thrown away. You need to replace it on your kitchen range with a flat-bottomed saucepan like these, made out of copper for excellent heat conductivity. But there's a problem with copper. It reacts with certain foods and creates a poisonous chemical reaction. So your copper pot needs to be lined with tin. If you get a scratch in your tin, your pan is potentially lethal. So you need the services of the tinker who goes from door to kitchen door, fixing the scratches in people's pans. Now, throughout the 19th century, though, kitchens don't really change. And that's because there's no call to adopt labour-saving technology when domestic labour is so cheap. It's only with the two world wars that you sort of get the sense that householders are going back into their own kitchens for the first time in centuries because they can no longer afford the servants and realising what inconvenient and dirty and nasty places they are. So it's only post-war that we get the invention of the clean, convenient, fitted kitchen. This design here, where I'm doing the washing up, is a famous post-war model called the English Rose. And the unique thing about the English Rose is that, well, you could, you could order any combination of units that would fit your particular house. That was a great selling point. And it was made out of aluminium to use up the aluminium that had been stockpiled for the building of Spitfires. Another innovation that moves into the home in this period, although it was invented for submarines, is the extract fan to take the smell out, to make a kitchen a pleasant place to be once again. This amazing smoke extractor was actually designed by Tony Snowden, Princess Margaret's husband, who had a background as a, a product designer and a photographer, and he installed it for Princess Margaret when the pair of them moved into Kensington Palace. I don't think that she actually did much cooking <laughs> in that kitchen. And once you've got these things, a clean-fitted kitchen, a smoke extractor, the kitchen is once again a pleasant and sociable place to be. And I think that now many people would agree that the kitchen is the room in their house that feels like the heart of the home. And that takes us back to that, that half stone in the centre of the medieval peasant's cottage. And that brings me on to my absolute final point I want to make today. People often ask me, what do I think that we can learn about the future from the history of the home. And to me, as I've hinted already, the future of domestic life looks curiously medieval. I believe that when the oil supplies run out, as they will inarguably do, we will be looking back to the pre-industrial past for, for lessons. In Britain today, this is already starting to happen. If you are an architect, you have to follow something called lifetime homes legislation. The age of specialised rooms is over. Today, rooms have to multi-purpose. For example, if you're designing a living room, you have to make it big enough to take a bed should the owner become incapacitated later in life and need to sleep downstairs. I think we're going to see the return of the chimney. Um, a wood-burning stove can be a sustainable heat source because you can grow new trees. 
We are going to see the return of the external shutter, which is an excellent means of security and insulation. Um, water consumption. Now, today at the moment, we each use an average of 160 litres, and that's for washing, cooking, bath, toilet, everything. By the end of this decade, the government wants us to get down to 80 litres, so half of what we're already using. But just think, the Victorians, who had to um, look after their water consumption, they only use 20 litres a day. And it's not inconceivable, this sort of thing. This habit we've fallen into of feeling like we have a requirement of a hot shower every day. That's only really developed in the last 30 years, hasn't it? People alive today remember times when that wasn't standard. And there's another point about the way in which our communities are put together. If you talk to a town planner today, the sorts of communities that they admire have an awful lot in common with a Tudor market town. They're very densely populated. People can walk wherever they need to go to. People eat local seasonal food from a farmer's market. This all sounds rather familiar, doesn't it? And what's really important, I think, is that rich and poor live close together. They're not all sort of segregated out into their own separate enclaves. In a Tudor town, if you were at the top of society, you were aware of and you had obligations towards those at the bottom of society. Now, I'm talking here about the, the ending of the oil and the implication is some huge cataclysmic destruction of our way of life. But let me reassure you, throughout the whole of history, everybody in every age has thought that the end of the world was just about the corner. Mm -hmm. They've always thought that their own age was wildly novel and violent and depraved and that everything was going to go utterly wrong. Well, it hasn't happened yet. We're all still alive. And I think we can still agree with Dr. Johnson in the 18th century that to be happy at home is the ultimate result of all ambition. Thanks for listening to me. This talk was recorded on the 10th of September 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved.